Welcome to the podcast. And our podcast episode is going to be dedicated to the fascinating world of Unix and Linux. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this one, we're going to delve into the history of features, impact of power, powerful operating systems. And please do join us as we explore the origins of Unix, tracing its roots back to the 1960s and its influence on the development of Linux in the 1990s. We'll discuss the key principles behind Linux and Unix, including the open source nature and the philosophy of collaboration, from the command line interface to the vast area of applications and distributions available today. We'll explore the versatility and stability of Linux and Unix. And whether you are a tech enthusiast or simply curious about this influential operating systems, this episode is sure to broaden your understanding of the Linux and Unix landscape. So, welcome to the Dead IT Show, where talk meets tech and vice versa. Please roll the intro. Okay. Okay. So, do I do the other part of the uh, other part of the text, or are we going to improvise? No, this is freestyle, man. Okay. So we are going to improvise. Of so, course, as always. So let's talk about Minix. <laughs> <laughs> the reason the reason why I did this is because the first the first letter in the in the rest of the document is Unix. So let's talk about Minix. Yeah, let's talk about Apollo guidance computer. <laughs> no, uh, but I have a, I have a reason why I said that okay. because I think that uh, what defined Unix and Linux today was Minix. Okay, I think that the breaking point uh, between something that was not different from VMS, uh, no different from any other boring operating systems, uh, boring operating system, uh, and in the seventies uh, was Minix. So they had Unix, they had Unices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, whatever versions of uh, Unix with a CS, uh, Unix with an X, Unix with whatever, uh, and different versions of IBM's operating systems back then that were also pretty, 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 uh, they had a pretty much, uh, pretty, pretty big share on the operating system. This is market in the 70s, mm-hmm. in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And nothing was... Uh, different between those, they were just corporate things. Then Unix came along, tried mm-hmm. to uh, develop something that could be called uh, compatibility and uh, standards. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly people decided that they're going to create Minix as a way of teaching how Unix works. Mm-hmm. And then people understood that uh, since they had the standards, they had the idea that they are actually able to uh, create their own system. So a guy from Finland decided that he is going to try to recreate another version of the Unix, but this time something is going to be open source. Okay. By the way, Minix is prominently mentioned in the document. Yeah, yes, 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 no, yes, but it should be. It should be. <laughs> cool. Okay. So, okay, so let's talk about uh, Thompson, Ritchie, Kernigan, and the other guys uh, from AT and T Bell Labs. AT&T, yes, yeah. I, I actually, uh, as I was, I wasn't actually preparing for this episode. I just stumbled across 
a series of old AT&T videos about Unix. Yeah, yes, uh, you sh- shared that. Uh, and I think that we can share the rest of them in the, in in the, the comments. Description. Yes. Yes, in the description, that's yes. absolutely something that we could, should, and will do. Um, I spent a lot of hours watching these videos, and I also went to Lex Friedman's po- podcast with, uh, with uh, Brian Kernigan as well. He had a couple of appearances there, and a couple of others as well. And suddenly I realized that there is much more to this story than I previously envisioned or thought thought that there was, especially from the perspective of uh, what you and I en- ended up doing in our lives as well, because the impact of Unix uh, on broader IT ecosystem cannot be overstated. But also I wanted to approach the, the episode from the perspective of wha- how it influenced our lives and, and our journey towards Linux and how Linux influenced our jobs, careers, our free and fun time, which we don't have enough of uh, today anymore. I have, a, I have a reason why I mentioned Linux in the start. Uh, because while I was driving here, I th- kept thinking Water. about... I kept thinking about... Uh, how different parts of computing changed with open source. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't escape the thinking about how Unix uh, was something that was more or less commercial and strictly enterprise uh, targeted in the start. Correct. Because nobody thought that they could exist a prog- uh, personal computer that would be able to run the Unix because Unix used to uh, used to be run on uh, mainframes that uh, took a whole building to run and hold on there for a yes, second but then they tried with pdp pdp was much smaller yeah because basically the back and background of uh, popularity of unix started with microcomputers as well yes but they 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 got there but i think that when minix came along mm-hmm. it was an echo of what an operating system that is unix like could look like if you tried to use it uh, use it in uh, education Okay. And the only difference between what is happening there and what is happening, for example, in the processor world, mm-hmm. because we have processors, uh, almost all the universities try to develop their own educational version of the processor, mm-hmm. but we don't have a Linux equivalent of a processor. We don't have a processor that is uh, widely accepted as something that is a standard, that is widely accepted as something that is actually running uh, commercial-grade applications. A sidebar. Uh, other than ARM. Sidebar. No, that's that's perfectly reasonable. Sidebar to this, or a tangent to this. Okay. I would say that you are at least partially wrong, because that's exactly what Unix was. Yes, I know. But <clears throat> this is not the whole story. Actually, in the ecosystem of that era, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that we are uh, uh, talking about as like a backdrop to what happened uh, at the beginning of 1990s, so Linux and whatnot, something else was happening. Um uh, it was actually, uh, you know, the the, uh, the IBM PC era started, and then the clones started as well. There were a lot of lawsuits. They were, you know, they're trying to copy within the realms of non-patent infringement, blah, 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 all of that. So there were actually more than a few parallel processes happening as the end game, let's say, of Unix and Linux and OS2 and Windows was happening uh, on the, let's say, in the operating system realm. 
Yes, but we also you also had the different thread that was running uh, MS DOS's uh, CPMs, uh, Z80s, uh, MSX uh, computers uh, from Japan, uh, different versions of different operating systems intended for different things. So uh, the market was completely bonkers then. Yeah, uh, you could. The what, spread on the market was crazy. Yes, you could uh, not only theoretically but practically people did. Uh, create their own computer, create their own operating system that was basic-based, that was uh, assembler-based. Uh, you could put on the market something that would be not marketable today, but the, uh, it would be completely shunned because nobody could be, uh, would be able to use it mm -hmm. because people were more or less happy with having an image on the screen, any image, um, be it a text mode in uh, something that is PAL. So this was a different time back then. But I think that the, what Unix did, and what Linux did, and what Linux did, is uh, it uh, enabled people to understand that something that is run in the enterprise can be run on the desktop, can be run cheaply, or for no money at all, and that oh, okay, you, commercial you, the licenses of Unix for the enterprise were hell of expensive. Yes, but it, uh, the Linux said, okay, but you can la uh, run something like this on the desktop. And at the same time, you can actually uh, gain knowledge and gain education that enables you to run the Unixes so that you can actually make money. There's actually a, a second part of that story. I, I don't necessarily think that we should go uh, very deeply into the history. I think we can do that in uh, over a span of multiple episodes because it's a very interesting topic. But one thing should be mentioned uh, as one of the key things or key early things or uh, some, let's say, primary reasons why Unix is so important. For me, the reason why Unix is so important is the fact that it introduced something that was mostly not really there on the market at that time. And I'm not talking necessarily about the operating system, although that's all definitely a story. Uh, I'm talking about compatibility. I think that the main thing that they actually were able to do is uh, they didn't have a corporation that was hanging around them. So nobody was watching over their uh, shoulder. And uh, you mean like IBM OS 2? Uh, uh, like IBM 360. Okay. Uh, because IBM 360, if you remember the Mythical Man Month uh, book and the whole uh, shebang about how uh, IBM 360 became an operating system, because mm -hmm. it was one of the leading operating systems back then, mm -hmm. uh, this design by committee was stopping people from thinking about how things could be done. Uh, if you should have, be done. No, could be done. Because when people try to understand how things could be done, they decide of one of the one of the solutions to a problem how they could should be done then. Mm -hmm. If you have a committee, you have much tougher time to uh, uh, give people the idea that they can uh, decide on something. And uh, having an operating system that is designed basically, not designed, but thought through by a couple of people, two or three persons, uh, so it's a, such a small team that you don't have a problem and your problem with decisions mm -hmm. just simply goes away. Decisions in a committee like IBM take months. Yeah, big corporations take a long, long time to so drag their feet before they reach a conclusion. Yes, because uh, uh, I think that most of the Unix was done in such a way that uh, people who designed it, so Richie Kernigan and Thompson, more or less just uh, got a piece of paper, put down a, put down a list of uh, requirements, a list of things that they can do, just brainstormed, and then continue uh, working on it. There's actually another story to this, uh, I think, which is very important. I mean, uh, 
I, I think I heard a story uh, and uh, from from the mouth of somebody who should know about it that Dennis Ritchie, when he was writing C, and the story of Unix is intrinsically linked to the story of C. Yes. Absolutely, like directly. L like Z80 and BASIC and uh, all the 8-bit uh, and computing yeah. in, the, in the 80s with BASIC. Yeah. Okay, so he basically wanted, uh, he had some free spare time. He had some vacation time, like two or three weeks or whatnot. And he sent his wife and children on vacation while staying home. And in three weeks, he wrote, uh, he basically... Uh, did the kernel. Did, did note, he did see. Uh but this is not something that uh, is something that that surprises me. It does not from the perspective of then, because the, back then people were capable of doing these things because they were much lower in the stack of understanding of how all of this works. Yes, engineering was way different then. I actually found a video today of a guy um, uh, uh, making his own x86 clone. So basic XT something like XT compatible back in the day when IBM was still doing all of the lawsuits with the, all of the others on the market. Yes, because you 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 could buy a handful of uh, components, uh, components yeah. and then get your computer running. Yeah, but but still boggles the mind because today there's no way. There is no way, and and uh, not only you could uh, create your own computer that was able to run something, you could also create your own assembly. Mm -hmm. Because enough uh, knowledge existed uh, for you to be able to do this, but the pool of knowledge was much smaller than today, so uh, a lot less was expected from the operating system itself. Mm -hmm. Because the operating system sh just basically had to, uh, in the, the smallest uh, possible implementation, mm -hmm. was more or less the thing that uh, sh just uh, should be capable of getting a file, dump it into the, into the memory, point the program counter to it, and say, okay, this is going to be run. Actually, th that's a, a part of the larger story as well, one of the th big things that uh, Unix changed forever. The, fire, uh, the file structure, the hierarchy, the directories, and, and everything is a file. Everything is a file, uh, everything should be simple and not simpler yeah. than that, and yeah. so on. And all of the commands and all of the things that they developed basically stru were structured around the standard of the file system which could be used for anything, which is vastly different to what it was at that time. And it was so, a very good idea. So my complete disruption of your trying to uh, go with the history okay. uh, is Thank going you. to end up with me going back to the history. So of course, um, let's talk about uh, 60s. Let's talk about uh, Bell Labs. Let's talk about uh, the research team that was there. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about what they tried to achieve. They had a project to do Unix. Uh, the what was what was the name of the Unix? I think with the CS. CS, yes. And then they tried to do something else. So and uni they were Uniplex information and computing yeah. system. They tried to do that, and then they realized that they cannot finish all of the, all of the things that they wanted uh, in time. Hence the free week vacation of uh, Dennis Ritchie and the Unix was born and everything else. And then they switched completely to that, which was. I cannot even begin to describe how much freedom they had to have to do stuff like that. But I think that the freedom came from the idea of uh, that the system they're, that they're designing first didn't mean nothing at all to other people at the, at the time. Okay. Because they're one of the research teams in the AT&T. AT&T was huge. So uh, a small research team that contained only three people uh, is something that was probably completely free to do whatever they wanted. 
as long as they uh, provided some uh, results hmm. uh, from time to time. So uh, in a big corporation like this, uh, being able to uh, uh, do your your own stuff, provide your reports more or less, and uh, mm. I, I shudder to think that anybody asked for reports, but okay. Yes, but probably they had to provide some sort of structured idea of what they were doing, and they said just we are researching operating systems, and uh, <laughs> combine combine this with the idea of we are going to be running an operating system that's going to be uh, different from all the other incompatible uh, operating systems by being compatible to itself. Uh, was something that wouldn't draw any attention. From our perspective, it's a breakthrough. From their perspective, they had uh, first the idea of what they were doing, they had the freedom, and they had the money. Mm -hmm. So they were able to provide themselves with the terminals, they were able to provide themselves with the computing power to be able to run the first uh, systems, because the PDP-7, which they were running, uh, they were doing uh, the operating system for, wasn't cheap. Mm-hmm. It's a, it was a piece of it was a piece of uh, hardware that was uh, expensive even by today's uh, standards. It was uh, th their licenses were uh, if you are l talking about corporate let's say li uh, Unix licenses they were like uh, something in the realms of two thousand dollars back then. Yes, per computer. Yes, so so and and they had to produce terminals. They had to produce. Yeah. Uh, uh, first, they had to uh, produce the hardware, so they had to have uh, available hardware to uh, talk to each other, to be able to provide the terminals with, uh, okay, dumb terminals, but you needed to have dumb terminals back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. So, everything was revolving around them. Yes, because the alternative was uh, teleprinters. Actually, and this is where ASCII came from. So, uh, yeah, uh, actually, I, I wanted to expand on that. Uh, just, just a couple of uh, let's say points to be made there, because you mentioned ASCII, and there are other things. You would be amazed at the amount of people who received Nobel prizes and Turing awards and similar stuff, which is w super big claim yes. in the scientific community who used to work there. But uh, both uh, Bell Labs and Xerox were basically the deep places uh, where the computing was born yeah and uh, not only for a the, as we know it today yes not only for the paradigms that they established so the user interfaces the objects the operating systems ideas like file systems yes yes so they were the places where uh, ideas were born and where ideas were implemented because I think from On merit uh, okay yes but what what I see from today's perspective, a lot of things that uh, we take for granted were just stuff that was uh, thrown at the wall and stuck. Uh, stuck. Uh, they were creating stuff, and some of those uh, things worked. Some didn't, mm -hmm. but we are seeing this. Uh, we have a survivor's bias, basically. We are seeing things that worked, but we don't know what happened back then. Yeah, there are. There's actually a lot of material if you want to find out. But yeah, you're generally. But, but I always, I always want to know uh, what was rejected. When I think about those things, I want to know <laughs> what, what drama was queen. Happened. No, no, but I want to know what was rejected. What were different ideas that were supposed to be Unix but were left behind? I suppose that a lot of them were probably very brilliant. <laughs> yes, uh, you must take into account that those were uh, those were the funny days of uh, a lot of acid being dropped and uh, pe people. Uh, Please don't go there. People doing creative thinking in other ways than, yeah, than other realms visited yes. and whatnot. Yeah, I know. Actually, uh, the, the other point that needs to be made there. Uh, I mean, Unix gained popularity uh, for primarily from the business perspective. 
you know, banks, financial institutions, blah, 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 the terminals, the, the mainframes, all of that is true. Then came the micro side of that with uh, smaller microcomputers and whatnot. This is basically the introduction to the home computer era, right before that. But at the same time, uh, they had a lot of stuff that was standardized, that they had applications, they were already talking about many concepts that we know of today, multitasking, multi-user system, you know, uh, scheduling, all of those terms come, all of those terms come from that era. It's not like they were invented afterwards. And after that era came the era of uh, computing, which is much more aligned to what we know today. Still different, but very similar to what we have today. I think that the main thing that I'm seeing as the driving force behind Unix was a complete shift from uh, trying to create uh, application mm -hmm. that is going to be a solution to your problems. So basically, uh, older systems kept booting into a particular application. So you had the bootstrap, you had your operating system, but operating system was uh, just there to put boot you into whatever application you, bo you bought. Mm -hmm. and then you had to use this application. The idea of uh, having a kernel and then uh, separating user applications, system applications, and everything else, so the S bin, user bin, and so, uh, so, uh, so on, the directories, was something that was strange then. Uh, it is, it's unbelievably normal now. Yes, but uh, imagine having to boot into an operating system that is the application. So imagine booting into the Word. Yeah, I know, I understand. But imagine booting into Chromium. In Chrome OS. Please don't go there. Yes, but this is this is the return of what we had in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And I'm completely fine with this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm completely fine with having uh, cheap computers that are uh, appliances. Actually, we have a video about installing Chrome OS on the channel as well. Yeah, yes, please, I know, but uh, these are appliances, uh, uh, what we call appliances today. But general purpose computing today means completely separate things. Can I, can I uh, throw you a bone? Because you are so kind to throw me a bone with Minix, I have one for you. Okay. Okay. You've been saying a lot of these big fancy words. Okay. And our, not necessarily, uh, it, it's not like uh, a given that all of our listeners and, you know, uh, con uh, content consumers are all that, uh, you know, deep into computing. So what's an operating system? It's a synergy of software and hardware. Don't tell me that. <laughs> Explain. So basically... Uh, I have a reason why I'm asking, but go ahead. Okay, so I'm going to try to uh, do the simplest possible explanation. If you have a piece of hardware, mm -hmm. you want to be able to do something on it. Mm -hmm. uh, since you don't want to deal with all the different hardware things, so you don't want to deal how your mouse works, you don't want to think about how your uh, graphic cards work, how your memory works, how your CPU works, whatever, how ev everything else works, you need some piece of software, uh, the operating system, that is going to enable you to uh, issue your own commands that, is that are going to be simple to somebody that is going to deal with the hardware. And this is the operating system. Okay, what is its exact role? To take control of all the hardware and enable you to uh, do some useful uh, operations on it. Be more technical. 
I refuse to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, there is an angle why I'm asking you this. Not yes, only because I don't know what your angle is, so no, I'm, no, not, I'm not going to go out on a limb there. Yeah, <laughs> you're scared. You, you, are, you are a cat. No, 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 no. But I'm, I know that uh, since I threw you uh, off the start. With <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> yes. Uh, what oh, I have some extra for you later. Yeah, yes, I know. But uh, the, the idea of an operating system is more or less the idea of uh, having somebody doing the Somebody. Somebody or something doing heavy lifting for you, so that you don't need to think about the hardware, and then you can go into details. You can go into details to this, uh, decide. Okay, is the operating system only the kernel? Uh, are the modules operating system? Because they are not produced by the operating system manufacturer. So if I get a third party or any party uh, uh, video card, and they produce their own drivers. Are the drivers operating system for the video card, and I'm, uh, am I having uh, two different operating systems running at the same time? Okay. Beca- because uh, we can run an operating system inside the video card now. Yeah, I know. We, we've been able to do that for quite quite many years, actually. There were earlier examples. So, but I'm, I'm not interested in this. I'm just interested in the, we have a, a thingy inside the computer that is able to run the things inside. I'm not, I'm not happy with that explanation. Okay, I have a reason why. You, you wanted a simple explanation. No, I want, the, I want the technical one, and I said that out loud. Okay. Uh, actually, the reason why I'm asking is that I uh, actually came across, uh, it was today, a couple of hours before okay. I came here, I came across uh, a, v- a video that's very, very old from okay. a TV show that's also very, very old, uh, which was called The Computer Chronicles. I don't know if you watched that. Yes. There's a, there's a channel on YouTube with a lot of the episodes, and in one of the episodes they're talking about the operating systems. And they say with a little bit, I mean, they have a little bit more time, uh, leeway time-wise, but the functionality of operating system, establish interface, permit multiple users. This is the one that we are going to come back on for in a second. Manage data files, we already mentioned that. Handle I.O., error recovery, system accounting, and maintenance accounting. From the perspective of a person, who did this in the 1980s. So this is this is a show from 1984. Yes. It is ex- almost exactly 40 years old. Yes. Okay. This is eerily correct. Yes, but this was back way then when people who were called journalists... Uh, knew cre- what the hell they're talking about. Not only knew what they were talking about, they also consulted people called uh, experts. And then those experts provided uh, fact-checking and uh, concept-checking for everything that was uh, broadcasted. So this is not a result of a single person trying to write down a, a show in the last 10 minutes before uh, the recording. This was something actually, uh, think this through for a couple of weeks. So I'm not surprised, but let me just have a little disagreement with you. Uh, everything here is, uh, not everything, but uh, multi-user systems, system accounting, and maintenance accounting is directly uh, connected to having a multi-user system. Mm-hmm. Uh, operating systems that had single users, and this is what was then pre- uh, prevailing on the personal computer market. And for many, many uh, years after. Didn't need system accounting, didn't need maintenance accounting, because okay. accounting itself was uh, something that only wasted resources and nobody was interested in this. Correct. This was in time-sharing systems. Yes. So remember the time-sharing systems. Oh yes. And, um, oh yes. So Google Unix systems prior to this one. Yes. Well. So so I uh, think that uh, trying to define a cooperating systems by uh, like something that had to have uh, multiple users on it 
is okay. Exactly the point where I want to go next. Okay, so go with your point. So uh, basically, in 1984, somebody made a show which was hugely popular back then. This is one of the biggest shows back then. Said that uh, permitting uh, operating system functionality needs to allow multiple users to work in it. In 1984, only Unix could do that. Yes. Which um, set the standard. Okay, but you had time-sharing uh, systems that were able to do this. Yeah, uh, were you able to buy them? Uh, yes, if you had an Were you, person, uh, piece one, able to buy that? How many years had you had, did you have to work for that? I was six. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I That's actually, awesome. <laughs> I actually don't know. Uh, probably from a perspective of a six-year-old, uh, I would be able to do it in today's uh, sta- United States, probably. Because they are going to get... Don't. <laughs> Don't. Not the point of the show. Yes, but but uh, what I'm trying to say is that uh, there were other uh, operating systems and there were solutions that enabled you to do the... Uh, yeah, but there were still Unixes. Yes, they, they had to be. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to say. But my, my point is actually, uh, let's, let's, let's uh, completely role reverse this. Imagine having the foresight to say that an operating system needs to be multi-user operating system for the freaking years ago. That's my point. Okay, but you had Kix and you had uh, VMS. Again, Unixes. Yes, but completely uh, separate development, completely separate ideas from Not the, the point. I, having the foresight to say that as a requirement for the operating system 40 years ago from okay. the perspective on them, okay. that's okay. Okay. We can like... I'm just going time. to say that for me, this is something uh, inconsequential. Because... Uh, if you if you think about the uh, every env- single system that you work on nowadays is a multi-user system. Yes, but uh, think about the systems back then. Mm-hmm. You had a single computer because they were hugely expensive. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of people trying to use them. Mm-hmm. So enabling multi-user usage of the single system was something that was a given. They had to do it. They okay. Back way then, they were ex- experimenting with having a computer that's going to run your programs in a way that you brought your programs in a bag on the on punch cards mm-hmm. and then you gave the punch cards to the to a person the person was running your program and then you got your uh, output back in the on the printout yep so this was one uh, way of doing it multi-user but this was not running a this was system. really not a multi-user yes. but yes i understand yes. so you had to do it it's not only that uh, the, the the point of the uh, the early of those timeshare systems is what ended up being multi-user systems with scheduling I think that the scheduling part is uh, interesting. Yes. Because uh, time sharing and scheduling is not the same. Absolutely and, not. And what they did with the scheduling, the idea of a process, the idea of a stream, the idea of a file system by itself, mm-hmm. the idea of a flexible file system that enables you to uh, mount multiple disks uh, and different... Use the pl- same commands on all of the data, basically. Uh, Use all the same commands, all the data. Have the data structured in such a way that one command can use the data from another uh, the command. Pipeline. Uh, yes, but I think that one of the most important things that are usually uh, completely neglected is the idea of an operating system that uses a file structure that more, I know where you're going that to, yeah. hasn't changed for the last 60, 60 years or so. Because it was well designed. It was well designed, and the file system itself and the file structure and the uh, standards for this file structure were defined in such a way that you, uh, now you don't care about which uh, file system you're using on because the same system. Yeah, it's exactly the same on all operating uh, systems, including Microsoft. Yes, but in Microsoft, 
you cannot have two different disks running completely separate file systems uh, easily on the same machine. You mean uh, Windows I cannot, installations? Or? No, no, I cannot create two directories that are going to be on separate disks and then those disks to be on the okay, completely different file systems. I cannot create, uh, I can create two disks. Mm-hmm. I can mount two disks that are completely different. So one is going to be, uh, I don't know, NFS mounted through the network. I can mount another one through Samba. I can mount a third one through NTFS. Okay. But I cannot create two directories that the user is not going to be aware of mm-hmm. and then uh, create completely different op- uh, file systems. One, for example, to have, uh, I don't know, B3-based uh, journal link, so it is going to be able to run extremely fast on small files, mm-hmm. and then have another one that is going to be able to do uh, redundancy or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this is something that changed the idea of an operating system for me. Okay, I get it. Because this is what, what is the main difference between the Windows and the Linux right mm-hmm. now is the ability to have a completely flexible operating system, uh, comp- uh, file system, and this file system is uh, different than the file structure. Okay, I'm with you on that one as well. Yeah, that's that's perfectly uh, perfectly reasonable. Yeah, uh, one other point. Basically, it uh, the idea of Unix came from research that was done there. Yes. Then Unix kind of like went out of the research into universities, which is again research in a sense. And after that, it basically came to when when the world was ready, when the technology was ready, blah blah blah, all that. Then it came to personal computers which is the story of later on of Linux, which we are going to go into as well. I find that path to be very interesting, especially when you compare that to what happens today. I'm completely, completely with you. I wanted to go back to the file system, and I'm going to say one thing that uh, was the most interesting uh, feature of the operating system from my perspective when I first saw it, even today, I think that this is one of the most uh, distinguishing features for any operating system. Uh, file magics. So, mm-hmm. file magic enables you to combine whatever you want inside your operating system without thinking about what are you trying to do, uh, without having to define file extensions, without having to define uh, strict uh, uh, command shells that are going to run your commands, because everything can be a mm-hmm. file. Everything can be an exec- executable. Everything can be used to execute anything if you want to. Mm-hmm. So you can create your own interpreter for whatever. Mm-hmm. You can create your own uh, sh- uh, scripts or binaries for whatever. You can incorporate them into the operating system and they're going to work. In mm-hmm. Windows, this is completely uh, impossible. Come on, that's what PowerShell is all about. Mm, yes, <laughs> yes. Just rolling a little bit. Yeah, yes, but, but okay, I'm completely fine. With uh, Windows having a command line that is 50 years old and still incompatible with itself, and then having a, having a PowerShell that is... Uh, still inc- incompatible with itself? In each uh, subsequent... Not uh, every, not each one, but among some of them. Yes, but they are the ones that are pushing for the... They're the ones that are pushing for the compatibility, backwards compatibility. Linux changed the entire structure of the executable file when they switched from uh, AL to uh, ELF. Elf. And it was done flawlessly. Thank you for mentioning Microsoft. because uh, And thank you for mentioning Minix. Yes. Because the next topic is... Linux. No. Uh, 
Sie nix. Ah, okay. Dobra. Okay. Okay, okay. <lacht> yeah, so Xenix uh, was something that Microsoft did. They actually bought the commercial license to do Unix, developed it. They sold a whole bunch. Their version of basically Xenix is Unix. Their version of uh, of Xenix was quite a bit substantially cheaper than what AT&T was asking for in the enterprise for the standard Unix. And uh, they were, uh, for, for a period of time, I read some information about the fact that they were the biggest seller of Unix in the world for a period of time. But, okay, to be completely fair, right now they're the biggest... What's wrong with you? Why do you want to be completely fair? To be completely fair with Microsoft, right now they're the biggest they're the biggest cloud provider for the Unix systems. Yes, they are. So I think this is one of those. No, things. they're second, but okay, okay but but in, in Azure, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they're Linux, Linux, yeah. Linux is prevalent. So yes, uh, this is you have to uh, give the credit is due. So Microsoft at the start when they started using Azure, they hated Linux, but they provided the ability to run Linux because they had to. Um, Uh, people <laughs> people wanted to have an operating system that is both uh, cheap and easy to run and at the same at the time a windows server was easy to run but wasn't cheap okay it still isn't cheap but yes but yeah. okay you can you can buy licenses that make make it cheap but uh not really uh, in accordance to the law but yeah <laughs> no no you, you 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 can you can uh if you do calls and if you do you have a huge number of users you can make it uh okay you can make it manageable Okay. Uh, it's not prohibitively expensive, as it was back then. Okay, I'm, I'm with you on that one as well. Because you can you can buy licenses. Uh, so basically, you can buy uh, uh, licenses per month. You can buy them in the in bulk. You can buy them in uh, when you're okay. spinning up the virtual machine. So this is not as expensive as it was. Okay. On the other side of the story, there was BSD, a topic for some other day. Not going to delve into that. Yes, BSD is always a topic for another day. It is, and we are going to go into it. Like, uh, like, uh, like I don't know, knee-deep at least, or waist-deep, because I find that story fascinating as well. But I wanted to just like push on with, with the story of Unix onwards. Uh, as, the, as, as years went by, as the famous uh, words say, What happened is that the, the same thing that made Unix very, very popular and kind of uh, attractive for companies at the beginning, the same thing that they tried to do there kind of kind of like came back to bite the media, which was related to fragmentation of the market and compatibility issues and whatnot. This is where our story starts with, uh, with Unix, more or less. You started a couple of years before me. I started using Linux in 1995. I was right, I, I was a little bit a little bit in front of you. You started using it in 1994, I think. Free, I, I think you mentioned free, yes. but never mind. I wanted uh, to. Uh, I, I'm not completely sure. Okay, uh, uh, the I installed first one in at the end of 1995. Deleted it almost immediately, but in 1996 I came back and then stuck with it. But I wanted to make uh, make something else very clear. Actually, our introduction to Unix was not Linux, because back there in the college where both of us studied. We had, uh, it was too early to have a Linux yes. in production. We had SunOS and then we had Solaris. Yes, yes, we had. Uh, This we had was our uh, growing up on Linux operating system, uh, on Unix, sorry. Yes, but I had a distinct pos uh, opportunity to more or less uh, run Linux as soon as I got to running uh, Solaris, to, to using Solaris and using uh, SunOS. So, uh, and back then, Linux and SunOS weren't that uh, separate. 
Because uh, when you they are... Still, they still aren't to, to this very day. They're very similar. There are some differences in administration. But yes, but when, when you are uh, approaching for the user side, because oh, yeah. uh, b- back, back way then we were users, we didn't know how to... Remote X. Yes. So b- uh, what we had were operating systems that were pretty similar. Mm-hmm. So uh, running something on the home computer, being able to run something on the home computer that you were able to run only on the university was a big thing. And it was, I think it was uh, partially playing with our minds and in our hearts as well, that story, because you came to the, co- you know, you came to college, you played around with Solaris, etc. you kind of had to because of the labs and yes. education and whatnot. And then you kind of wanted to have something like that at home. It was prohibitively expensive, hardware yes. and software. And when the right story came along, which was Linux, we, uh, everybody who were, uh, all of us we, uh, from that generation, plus minus a couple of generations, at college, everybody jumped on the Linux bandwagon. Yes, this is the one thing, and the other thing that enabled us to do it, and I don't know if you thought about it, is that uh, people who were responsible for putting up a network since uh, Croatia was just warming up, mm-hmm. and the people responsible for the networking for the universities, uh, so uh, people who uh, put up the network between the universities' uh, nodes and then the people who put up the modem networks, mm-hmm. were also young, Mm-hmm. And they wanted to run Linux on their own home computers. So you were able to find uh, people who, who would enable you to use the uh, modem servers to connect to uh, internet. I think it was easier to do this than it would be to connect to the internet today. Because the support itself uh, was available directly from the providers that were providing the connect- uh, connection to the universities. So you had... Uh, like-minded people on the other side that were still uh, experimenting. You had you c- would do anything, mm-hmm. and you could ask for anything. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to put up your own, um, I don't know, uh, mail server or uh, internet relay chat server, mm-hmm. you just had to ask. I had uh, internet relay chat server actually on my computer, and a lot yes, of people used it. Yeah, but th- th- that was the. At at the time where we were so young, you know, it was the expression of kind of like ultimate freedom or something. Yes, because you could do something that was uh, pure uh, technology, it was cool. but it was pure technology. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't mainstream. You could call it punk. Uh, it ba- basically, it was it was uh, it was uh, our version of acid. No, 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 no. <laughs> <coughs> you had. Unstructured pure technology that was uh, not tainted by uh, commercial. Uh, mm-hmm. Commercial technology wasn't available or was available, but in different uh, in different spheres. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, <coughs> I spent the next couple of years actually uh, after 1996 running uh, Linux at home, but slowly getting to grips with it. No documentation, so you had to learn everything. You know, be, by beating your head against the wall. Because most of the projects that came afterwards, like Linux documentation project, whatnot, were happened a couple of years later. I continued using Sun uh, a lot on the side. Actually, I spent the first three years of college, you know, failing the uh, of my college obligations, all of them. But I spent better part of the every single freaking day uh, sitting at our terminals and learning about it, which turned out to be good for me in the future. But of course, I wasn't aware of that at the time. That actually led me to something else. Uh, which was I started working very early, actually, already at I don't know, second year of college, maybe even the, the first one. I started working as a s- system admin for a couple of companies, and 
uh, that also enabled me to see that Linux is slowly but surely going into production. So that's the first part of the story. And the second part of the story, I was involved in the IEEE student branch here in Zagreb. I worked for faculty of, uh, uh, what's the FSB? They had a large lab laboratory with Unix systems there. So I actually spent my time, uh, or divided my time between the SunOS's and Solaris's of our college, and then there they had HPUX, Ultrix, uh, I don't know, uh, Digital Unix, of course, uh, and like 10 different variants of everything Unix-wise. And when I uh, got to the uh, full second year of college, so when I uh, signed for electronics and all of those beautiful topics that we had to, uh, all of those beautiful uh, courses that we had to pass, which were very difficult and complex. Uh, this is when I was introduced to a professor who was at uh, uh, the electronics department who wanted uh, to find some people who could help him out with some of the projects that he was doing, which were computer related. He wasn't all that much into Unix. And he got um, some kind of a donation of two of my favorite machines of all time, which were Alphas 21164. So um, my uh, my best man and myself, we spent the best part of the next two years uh, kind of like configuring all of those systems. Then we got Tektronics oscilloscopes and many other electronic components. We kind of like tuned all of that. It was the best time ever. But this actually brought me closer to the other side of the story of, of Unix, which is going to be very useful later on in life, which was the business side, in a sense. This was the, the primary, uh, probably the first time when I realized that this, uh, this Unix-Linux thingy was something that was actually capable of being a, a viable business model, service-based business model, obviously. Okay. It we th this was a big revelation for me, because when you're 22, 23, you think you know everything, you know nothing. That's the usual description of people in college. Uh, I'm definitely guilty for the, of that as well. Thankfully, uh, uh, thanks to the structure and the professors and the, all of the people working at the college where both of us went, we learned to learn. We managed to do something with, with that knowledge which we had, uh, which we kind of like acquired there. But the, the, the Unix and Linux part of the story was a part of that and yet very much separated for the from the college experience. I must say that uh, my uh, path was quite different because uh, I was first running uh, Linux in my on my home computer. Okay, I did uh, college courses and everything else on the on the internet that was available in the in the university, mm -hmm. and I got my first mail address as soon as I and you as soon mm -hmm. as we uh, went to uh, went to Venus, university. Stilia, Sidonia, uh, uh, yes, before that, you, you got your uh, email address from, probably from Sertsep. Uh, yeah, and Sertsep account we got yes, afterwards, yes. usually. Mm, yes, but I got it before because I already got it in the, my... Uh, in my uh, uh, when I was finishing uh, college, uh, when I was finishing my middle school. Yeah, secondary so, school. Uh, second secondary school. So, uh, but the idea uh, of using this uh, funny new operating system as a tool was what uh, was interesting to me. I wasn't Same. interested. I wasn't interested in the administration. The administration came as a side effect of uh, trying to configure it to do whatever I wanted. Exactly the same. Because I needed to do some things, and I realized that uh, DOS, Windows 95, um, Windows 98, and then because we were in the realm of DOS then, mm -hmm. uh, weren't up to the task. Yes. Uh, 
I must say that when OS2 came along, coincidentally I, a topic of one of the future yes, podcasts. I, I thought I thought that this is going to be better than Unix or Linux. Absolutely but, agreed. Be, because I thought that they finally managed to uh, throw away the problems that the Windows had and managed to uh, create an operating system that was actually capable of, uh, of doing whatever win Windows was promising. So it was able to, uh, able to do uh, regular multitasking. Yeah, and first remember, operating system which worked that way properly. And remember that this was the first operating system that didn't stop when you had a problem with your floppy. Yeah. So uh, all the operating systems back then had this problem. Yeah, high interrupts. Yes, and uh, OS2 was able to do do it uh, do the interrupts in such a way that you were able to actually use it. You didn't care about what was happening. But Windows still cannot do that. Yes. Yes, this is this is a big problem. Yeah. So, uh, I had a small I had a small uh, uh, separa separation from Linux back then, but then I realized that okay, this is going to be something else. Then, uh, I put up uh, operating no the server by uh, more or less taking away from the we had a journalistic um, journalistic in the uh, in the university uh, in Inkset, in set uh, so the mm -hmm. uh, students club. We had a journalistic section that was putting up uh, local university uh, monkey fair. It was called monkey fair. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a publication that was B-monthly mm -hmm. or whatever. And they had a computer. Mm -hmm. They had a 486 that they were using for, the, for publishing it. And then we more or less took it over and installed Debian on it. And, uh, that was that. Yes, we, we created uh, our own server. And, and I'm sure that that computer went into retirement with the Debian on it. Yes, yes, the, probably the same one. But uh, what we did is we created our own uh, mail addresses. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those things when you... People don't understand this today. Yeah, but I know. if you... Uh, back then, you not only got an email, email address, you created your own. This was completely another thing to do. Yeah, you felt so much power. Yes, because you you... Uh, managed to create something from nothing. You uh, got your uh, domain, which wasn't simple. Uh, you had to buy it because we, we bought the domain. So we got the domain from the university, but this domain was whatever they gave us. And then we created our own domain. We created our own DNS. We created our own uh, mailing system. And this server, in one of the reincarnations, uh, exists even today. Mm -hmm. So the service that we uh, service that we named Marvin is always uh, is. Uh, I remember that one very well. Yeah, yes, but this one is is exists uh, up up until today. It got moved a lot of, uh, through a lot of hardware, but it's the it's the same server. It's the server same same created, idea. Yes. Yeah, uh, for me, the uh, same story happened with Archipoli. Yes, we had our own server there. I was administrating it uh, all the way till the end of college. Might uh, the first time when I. Uh, configured secure shell on it and uh, when I configured send mail on it and stuff like that, it was like, wow. Yes, and the other thing that uh, I must say that was important to me uh, was that uh, sometimes during some, sometime during the university and study, uh, I got uh, involved in doing basically a uh, small scale administration i was mm -hmm. i was i had a couple of uh, clients uh, i administered a couple of networks uh, 
for small clients, there was a same. So, so a, a couple of computers. I don't know a single computer that was dedicated server. So yeah. basically, the worst computer that they uh, they didn't want to throw out, and then they reconfigured as a server mm-hmm. uh, that had a single share on it, uh, and you had to put a, a proxy to connect to the internet on on it. You had Good to put, old squid. Yes, you had to put on a pro- no. I uh, started with the uh, proxy on Windows. Okay. Uh, because uh, back way then, uh, Windows Server was something that you actually used. Uh, hmm. Small business server and uh, and the, uh, yes, but unfortunately, uh, since my clients had to buy the licenses because they were obliged and they had to buy the licenses because they were doing uh, some stuff that was. Did you use WinGate? Yes. For proxy. Yes, yeah, I remember that. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. But uh, uh, we had to use the Windows Server. Mm-hmm. So I was more or less dragged into the Windows administration first. Uh, not yeah. because I wanted to, but because I had to. For me, it happened on my laptop. The same story happened on my laptop because I got my first laptop very early, actually. Uh, it was probably already something like second year college. So it was prior 2000. Um, and I needed an op- operating system to run on it. And I tried all of the above. And even back then, I was still trying to make Linux work as a desktop, which never worked for me. It is what it is. Uh, I'm a Linux server man, not a Linux desktop man. Uh, and I ended up uh, back then using Windows Server 2000. That was my fir- that's 1999 to uh, 2000. That's the that's the year that I'm talking about. Uh, I switched from regular Windows to Windows Server 2000 on my laptop, which was the first operating system uh, from Microsoft that worked without the hitch for me. I'm not with you on that. My, fir- my first uh, operating system that I ran on my uh, desktop, so I did. it wasn't a laptop, it was a desktop, was uh, 351 uh, NT. No, I had that as well. Yes. I tried that and 4.0 and whatnot, but this one was actually quite stable. 2000 uh, was very good. one was stable, unless you wanted to try to game. Mm-hmm. Then uh, it was yeah. Then it was crap, yeah. uh, <laughs> because it was it was completely incapable of uh, being able to support any kind of video and audio. And the reason why I didn't have a desktop OS on that laptop wasn't that the desktop OSs of that era were not something that I used. Oh, I did. It was actually because of the fact that the laptop didn't want to work properly with the desktop OSs. Back then, laptops were an exception, not the rule. Yes, but this is one thing and. To be completely honest, uh, desktop versions of Windows, so the consumer version of Windows, uh, 95, 98, 98 second edition and so on, were crap. They were not. I think they were. I think they were because uh, you uh, got used to having a blue screen every other day uh, a lot. and <laughs> Okay. Yes, and Finish. this, uh, uh, if you wanted to... Uh, if I told you that your computer is going to uh, blue screen itself uh, once uh, a day, uh, not once a day, but let's let's say once every two days, this is normal. Today, yeah. this wouldn't be normal. You would consider this computer to be completely uh, crappy. I'm saying that they were crap from uh, this perspective today. Back way then, we were happy to just reset the system and say, okay, this was wrong. Okay, can I counterpoint? Yes. To th- do a counter to that. Windows 95 for me was the only Microsoft OS of uh, like the, the, the of all times, which I didn't mind reinstalling once a week. Okay, which is similar to a point 
said in a different way because I really didn't and it worked perfectly for me. I actually have Windows 95 on one of my computers at home still to this day works perfectly. But topic for another day. Windows 95 OSR 2 service release 2 when they introduced the uh, Croatian signs and you know Croatian yes. keyboard and whatnot was the, the 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 version which really worked well for me on my home desktop. 98 first version was unusable. 98 the 98 SE was excellent. Yes, second edition. Well. Second edition was the best operating system back way back way then. And but then, but the competition was weak. Yeah, it was of course I agree. By by then uh, unfortunately OS2 was already dead. Uh, largely because of one of uh, one big marketing blunder by uh, by IBM, which we're going to discuss in another episode, which was mind-boggling, but it is what it is. Thank you, Paramount Pictures, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, after that came uh, Windows Millennium Edition, which I'm sure you know how I feel about, but if you don't remember, is uh, the by far the worst OS that Microsoft ever made. Uh, I think that. Uh since we switched from, in some way we switched from Unix to Windows, uh, Millennium Edition was something akin to a traffic accident. Uh, everybody, everybody knew that it existed. Mm -hmm. Nobody's talking about it, and everybody has a blurry idea that something bad happened. Mm -hmm. But they don't want to the, revisit it. The, 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 so they don't want to don't want to revisit the memories. Yes. So so something bad happened in the in the start of the nine two uh, thousands. And people completely ignored it, either installed Windows Server 2000 mm -hmm. or uh, used Windows 98 second edition un uh, until um, XP, came uh, XP came out. Yeah. For me, uh, I uh, used Linux every single day on, my, uh, on the, uh, in the IT student branch. I used it for, uh, of, uh, at, in my clients' offices as well. I had two, two, one, two, three clients that I was doing system maintenance for. One of them was actually a public company that's uh, close to our ex-college. And um, on my private computers, I tried very hard to have the uh, Linux as a desktop, but never succeeded. I used it as a server. I had a dual boot, usually on my both my home computers and my laptops. So if I wanted to do something quickly and I needed to do something for the labs, for assignments, whatnot, I would just put Linux and everything would be fine. And first version of Linux that I ran permanently like for a long, long time. Uh, hence, that, that's where my story with Red Hat comes from. I used more than a few Linux distributions before that. But for me, a Red Hat 303 Picasso version was the first version that I really used up to its limits from day one to uh, when I switched to Red Hat 4 or whatever it was next. Just like you, I installed Slackware many, many times and Turbo Linux and all of the, all of the above, whatever. I wrote more than a few articles about it for our URX magazine as well. And never really managed to kind of like untangle myself from Red Hat, which was actually a happy accident. It was a happy accident because when I, dis when I realized that I'm wasting so much time constantly trying different Linux distributions, like with this, SUSE, that, this, that, blah, 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 Red Hat, this and that, I kind of got frustrated and said, I'm going to try to rationalize this, kind of like ma make it a rational process. I'm going to pick and select for myself a Linux distribution that works for me, like no blue screens, as you said, yes. no kernel, kernel dumps. I want it to be easy to install. That was my first and key requirement. 
Yes, back, back way then it was it was a big thing. Because uh, uh, for our viewers slash listeners, uh, back in the day that we are discussing, uh, deploying Slackware 1.0 required many, many, many floppy disks. M- uh, almost like all. 70, something like 70. Yes, they were divided in A, A, P, D, Q, you know. And you had groups of floppy disks. Yes. Uh, each of those had to work. Yeah, and I, you had bad sectors on the seven, floppies. 70 floppy disks is something like 3 kilos of floppy disks or so. So it was a huge amount of space required to... Uh, what ended up happening, you, you like deployed the first 20 disks, then the fir- 21st didn't work properly, then you went back to college, copied it back, then went back home without turning off the computer and many many yes, times this, over this, this is the point yes yeah, which was fun not uh, but it is what it is for me the reason why red hat prevailed actually in my story is slackware already star- started slowly to die down for, uh, for from the perspective of how many users people are using it and most people started gravitating to, to, towards either red hat or debian it was those days i tried to deploy debian back then many many times and decided that I would rather like take take uh, take off my arm uh, from the elbow down than use Debian uh, from the perspective of deployment, which was okay. But Debian deployment wasn't that bad. No, back then it was. Yeah. Okay, but it wasn't that bad compared to the compared to Slackware. Slackware didn't have a deployment strategy. You just chose what you wanted to do. Uh, as you were doing it, it required enormous amount of knowledge to know what you needed to install, and then not after, my experience, but okay, I understand. yes, but but uh, when because you were experienced then back back then, you knew. Uh, I think that the way Slackware worked is that since uh, all the floppies never worked, mm-hmm. you restarted the installation process so many times that you got used to it even before you installed your first uh, complete installation. That's absolutely true. So. Uh, it was okay, but also it was back, way back then uh, when uh, we needed to recompile the kernel for every single thing. And that that was actually my biggest playground and by far the the, the source of uh, the, the most of the learning curve. That yes, I because uh, uh, imagine for all the listeners today, uh, imagine that if you want to install an application. One of the requirements is not installing a package. Mm-hmm. One of the requirements is uh, completely recompiling the kernel of the operating system because this is required for the application to work. Mm-hmm. And not only recompiling it, but actually sometimes having to change the C code for the application in order to accommodate for the uh, particular kernel and particular version of the operating system that you're using right now. And this was both frustrating and immensely interesting. You know what was my biggest source of knowledge from that side of the story that you just said? SCSI. Yes, yes. Not networking, not modems, not sound cards, not video cards, that was easy. SCSI was something else. Uh, My biggest source of complete frustration was uh, switching from different chipsets to different chipsets. Because back way then you had to uh, tell the kernel which uh, chipset and which processor you're using so mm-hmm. the pr- the optimization for the, this particular processor would available on the, on the kernel. And the amount of times I recompile the kernel just to change things is probably in hundreds. I, I actually, uh, for a while I was counting. I did more than 2,000. Uh, yes, but uh, I know it was hundreds because uh, I was... Uh, it, uh, okay, one more thing. Uh, recompiling the kernel wasn't uh, a 10-minute job. 
Uh, it uh, so on my first computer that I heavily used at home, DX four hundred. Yes. It took something like six hours. I think it was something. Yes, it's something like four or five. Then I, I went correctly. to Clam Clamat, so uh, Pentium two, and then it take it took two hours. Yes, but first you uh, had to think your configuration through. Mm-hmm. You had to use the menu config, so you had to use the. Um, I did uh, not use the menu config ever. I used the menu config because I was uh, when I was so frustrated with, with kernel, I decided that I'm going to use the end curses uh, for <laughs> the cursed thing, and I'm just going to click through the configuration. End curses rock, but but not for that. Yes, but okay. So I decided on end curses, and I decided on the um, uh, the closest thing that they got to the user interface to be able to click through the entire uh, different things. And then you had to first reconfigure it, mm-hmm. then pre-compile it, then compile it, mm-hmm. then wait, uh, reboot. Then modules, then modules install. And then it wasn't working. And then go back to the start and uh, redo from start. Yeah, while one. Yes, so this is one of those things that uh, was frustrating, but this was the way that we learned how to use it. Because you had to know how the scheduling worked. You had to understand what was happening in the you modules. You had to know your hardware. You had to know your hardware. You had to know which version of the hardware you were using. I was buying hardware off of the list of compatible hardware with the kernel. That was my thing. Yes, this is one one uh, option. And the other option was uh, using experimental version of the hacked version of the Adaptec uh, controller for the yeah, whatever. Yeah. Because uh, nobody had a working uh, device driver for the SCSI back way then. Mm-hmm. Everything was experimental, mm. and you had to put up with stuff going uh, uh, completely wrong. I, w- I would say every other week. I remember actually uh, when I was doing probably my two thousand five hundredth kernel compile. I was actually on the phone. You know those things that used to have a big cord between yes. the <laughs> that funny thing that we used to have. Bad joke. Um, I was talking on the phone uh, like this. Then I put it like this, and then t- I was like, okay, yes, no, yes, no, M, yes, no, M, yes, no, M, you know, module, yes, yes. no. Basically doing it without watching at the screen, because I, uh, for the kernel versions 2.x, I did it so many times I didn't need anything. I, s- I actually compiled uh, 2.x versions of the kernels more times by editing the .config file than uh, by going to the menu. Uh, I started, Completely bonkers. I started doing that, because uh, it was quicker. It was much, yes. much it, faster. It was quicker because uh, the menu config uh, started being uh, bloated and mm-hmm. it still exists yeah, today. I know. But as well. I think it is something like some thousands of uh, different uh, options. options. Yes. And there is no way for a person to uh, be completely sane uh, when he finishes everything. He or she uh, finishes that. Yes. I knew every single option in the menu, uh, in the text config. When I was doing it, I could just recite it to you. Okay, okay. 86, BX, FX, chipset, blah, 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 blah. Every single one of them. This is just pure insanity. Yes, but... Thankfully, I stopped doing that 20-odd years ago. uh, Thankfully, when I got first kernel that was uh, running out of the box, and that Which was as modular as it could be running out of the box. So, that was running out of the box. So, it was able to be uh, started... And it uh, ended in something resembling a working operating system. So I could uh, load the modules that are going to work. Mm-hmm. I was as happy as I could be. 
because Same. I didn't I didn't want to go back to the redoing the uh, uh, kernel compile because I didn't want to compile the kernel. Uh, I learned a lot, but I didn't want to waste uh, three or four hours of my time every time I want to change something. Yeah, I agree. I, we did that plenty of times, so it was time to um, use our times, uh, use our time a little bit more wisely. And this is the reason why I am uh, now fully waiting for the K patch uh, thing to uh, come along, so that I can change uh, kernels on the fly. So that I don't even need to reboot. You mean Red Hat's project for live patching of kernels? Or? Yes, yes, yes. Um, so okay. uh, live exchange of kernels. Mm -hmm. So not only patching, but just exchanging the new version with the mm -hmm. old version. Coincidentally, something that exists on some other architectures for many, many, many years. Yes, but uh, let's stick to Linux. Mm -hmm. uh, just, just to uh, mess with you, this is a Windows me. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, that. But you do realize that that is the OS, the only OS in the history that I've ever used that I really detest. I completely avoided it. To be completely honest, I, I avoided it. I mean, it. it was closely followed by Vista, but still it was on its, I, own, uh, on, on, its, on its own third hill. I have two things that I need to, uh, I need to confess on. First is that I uh, avoided, when, when I, uh, I was always experimenting with the operating systems. Yeah, you still are. Yes. Uh, when Windows uh, 12 uh, comes, I'm going to install them as soon as uh, as soon as the alpha uh, alpha is released. Sure, on a virtual machine, right? No, 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 no. Pe pe uh, real people do it on the real the, metal. Bare, bare metal, yes. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, the other thing is that uh, I was completely uh, on uh, when I installed Windows Me. I tried mm -hmm. it. I used it for maybe one afternoon, and then I said, okay. Screw this. Let's go back to the 98 second edition. I'm going to wait. Mm -hmm. uh, I can wait. Uh, I, I, I'm not that eager to install this operating system any, any, any time yet. Let me ask you a question. Do you still have those? Uh, I don't know if you did it uh, in the past couple of years, if you reinstalled any of these old yes. OSs. Do you still have those ticks that you have, like Windows 95 installation starts, and you just somehow know the, the key of the uh, stuff like that, serial number? The, I don't know the serial number, but I think that if I saw it, I would probably be able to remember at least part of it. I still remember most of them. Yes, uh, DG and so on. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. No, let's not go till all the way to the end. Yes, but yeah. the, the, there is a T-shirt. I know, I saw it. With part of the serial number and says uh, says I was there. Actually, on one of the, <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the retro computing groups in Facebook today, Yes. Uh, one of the guys uh, posted a uh, screenshot of uh, many, 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 and then some uh, keys from that area. Era. Sorry. But okay, uh, pirate keys uh, aside. Uh, ah, okay. <laughs> uh, Crazy people. Yes, but the idea of uh, switching uh, um, switching uh, distributions in Linux was never appealing to me. Uh, I liked uh, trying out new versions uh, versions of Windows. Uh, I like try trying it out because uh, Microsoft is occasionally uh, putting out a version of Windows that works, <laughs> and they more than occasionally screw things up. And Windows 11 on your computer eloquently proves that point. Yes, and uh, I like the idea of uh, the box of chocolates, and uh, you get uh, what you get. Carrot and stick. Uh, yes, and uh, <laughs> Linux is just, it's always working, 
And I can always try a new distribution out in the virtual machine, but I'm almost completely unlikely uh, to be installing this on my bare metal machine. So I have a bare metal machine at home that is running Ubuntu, mm -hmm. but I didn't run any other distribution other than Ubuntu and uh, PopOS. PopOS was uh, was interesting for me uh, because uh, I wanted to see what was happening on the System 76 side and I wanted to see how did they pull off with their own uh, uh, application store. One of our students, uh, our uh, administrator, uh, one of our uh, assistants, yes. uh, posted, uh, actually made a video of installation of PopOS for our channel, so it's also on our channel. So PopOS was interesting to me because of the store. It wasn't interesting as an operating system, but I... It's an interesting idea. Yes, but I hate distribution hopping. Distribution hopping is something that I don't understand. Uh, I don't understand uh, the need to completely install your... Uh, uh, production machine mm -hmm. uh, every other day. Weren't uh, those people also doing some laptops and stuff, right? Yes, they, they, they start. They started doing the laptops and servers, and then uh, created their own version of the system. But they still sell laptops. Right? Yes, yes, yes. I yes, like yes, the yes. laptops, by the way, very much. Yes. And our former colleague has one. Yes, I know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, basically, when I started with uh, with Red Hat, I kind of stuck with it all the way to, the, to this day, which proved to be a very, let's say, uh, luckily made without any hesitation, without any thought process. It's just a random choice because I liked the installation part the most uh, out of all of the other distributions. I stuck with that. And when I uh, finished college, I wake up from my, I don't know, Red Hat induced snooze or something. Uh, and when I got my first job, I actually... Uh, like started googling stuff related to Red Hat a little bit and realized that I also kind of like left one thing on the side which I noticed actually a couple of years earlier which was the fact that Red Hat while I was playing with, uh, with the exams finishing the college and working with their distributions whatnot on the side and administrating stuff they became quite a big company and they did one thing which uh, uh, made them kind of like appealing in my eyes immeasurably, which was they also, they had the commercial stuff, they had the non-commercial stuff, which I think both of us appreciate, but they had a complete education and certification stack. This was my vision without knowing it at that time, so I was completely oblivious, but I realized that that's something that could lead to something when I realized that they have the system administrator, engineering exam, whatnot, and one of the first things that I did uh, after I got my first employment, coincidentally, uh, actually second employment in, uh, in the computer magazine, after I was done with that, is to go and uh, pass those exams, which, after, which I was aware of that uh, at that time as well, that it's going to surely mean something, which led to basically seeing the whole world. Okay. Even, partially even more so than the editor meets journalist meets whatever part of the career prior to that and during that era. I wasn't interested in this this part of the education uh, yes. back way then because I already got too much into journalism. Mm -hmm. And I was an editor and I was editor-in-chief and I didn't want to, um, I didn't have the time to uh, invest in uh, in. Uh, uh, education because I was playing with uh, Linuxes all the time. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I started in 1993, 94, whatever, and I still uh, still haven't uh, stopped. So when I see a new uh, distribution, I'm going to install it in a virtual machine right now. Uh, I have a couple you of... You do markets. realize how irrational it is to install Linux on a virtual machine and Windows on a physical machine? Yes. Okay. Uh, at, at one point in time, a couple of years ago, I had a laptop that you could dual boot, mm-hmm. and... I think I still have the disk. Uh, so basically what I did is uh, I installed uh, uh, a laptop that you could dual boot. It had two disks. Mm-hmm. I installed a VMware workstation on it. Mm-hmm. I mapped uh, the virtual machine inside the VMware. Like to a physical disk? Like a physical mm-hmm. disk. And so, dual boot from that. Yes, so I could actually dual boot Windows and then run Linux in, in it. Or I could uh, dual boot Linux and then run Windows in it. Uh, so uh, the other system was be able, be able to be... <laughs> this is why I say that he is a chaotic dude. Yes, but, but, but personally, I love that. Uh, l- Windows has a problem with this. If you are... Well, every time you, you, are, you are booting the operating system inside your virtual machine, uh, the complete hardware changes. So Windows has uh, tons of tons of errors that, that they throw, uh, throw out. Linux is completely behaving. Everything is working. You can run it as a virtual machine on the normal hardware. Seems like the me- like a metaphor for for us, actually. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so uh, this is one of those things that were, uh, I was doing because I was bored and I w- wanted to try uh, how th- uh, stuff worked. But uh, being with one uh, uh, one foot in the open source world enabled me to do a lot more than I would be if I just uh, st- stuck to the Windows world. Mm-hmm. And because people... In the journalism uh, part, if you know uh, your way around the open source, you get a lot more doors open uh, for you. Um, uh, oh, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, because people understand that, first, you know what you are doing with your life because you are trying new technologies, but also they understand that you are not uh, committed to one technology and going to be uh, just writing about it and be a fanboy of it. Actually, uh, uh, wh- while you're mentioning this, I remember this because it was one of the defining uh, experiences of my uh, time in that computer magazine. My first CBIT, uh, my colleague that I went there with, uh, who shall not be named now, yes, uh, introduced me to guys from ABIT, which used to be a motherboard manufacturer, very good motherboards, by the way, and AMD, and he called me the Linux guy. Okay. In front of him, he said, he introduced me, Vedran is our Linux guy. He is the man for Linux. And that actually brought a lot of, uh, uh, like, significant change into my life. Because then uh, we, uh, I got some projects that I did for uh, one of the guys at AMD. I got a lot of motherboards for my ABIT, etc. It kind of, like, snowballed into yes. something that was much, much bigger than what I was kind of like envisioning at the time not not hoping envisioning like in my wildest dreams but it's the same today uh if you uh show uh, an inkling of interest in something that is not mainstream you are going to get immensely better uh, uh connections and better response from every, every everybody who is uh, working in this field so for example I was I was doing something. Uh, I was talking to uh, a students today, uh, a couple of students today, about uh, they are trying to do something on FPGA uh, chips, mm-hmm. and I want to do some small. Um, I'm trying to do some uh, small project with the uh, students to enable them to create a small sensor, and 
while I was doing this, I was talking to a guy who is uh, who is who is running a Lora network here in Croatia, and basically. How dare you talking to somebody else while you have class? I'm sorry, I just <laughs> did it. In any way, uh, uh, I was uh, communicating with him. I wasn't talking; I was, I was uh, writing, yeah, texting. Uh, yes, because I wasn't able to talk during the class. But uh, as soon as I said I want to do something, I was offered a uh, lot of connectivity, uh, different modules, and so on. This is not something that you can expect when you're dealing with uh, mainstream. Uh, as soon as you just stray a little bit out of the mainstream, uh, you're going to realize that a lot of people are trying to help you. Not because they want to uh, invest because they are expecting necessarily business connections. Or return. Yes, they want to invest because they, they see that you are interested in something that is completely off the charts, not mainstream. So they want to help you to get the word out. They want to help you, whatever you're doing, they want to help you the world out. Mm -hmm. And this is the the thing that I want to close with because I think that we should be uh, finishing with this mm -hmm. part because there's going to be another part. I have the idea for another episode. I'm going Me to too. explain, yes. So uh, the Linux was not something that uh, I used because I needed to. It was something that was uh, the same as if I used, I don't know, a new version of the screwdriver. It was just a tool that I realized has enormous potential and it is a way of being a Swiss knife for everything that I uh, I want to do in my uh, job as a, a journalist, in my job as a system administrator, mm -hmm. in my job as an educator and so on. So Linux is not a thing that I'm uh, a fan of. It's just an necessity. Yes, you are. Yes, but I'm the fan of... Okay, technologically uh, fan. Te uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of uh, a thing that actually works. Me too. Um, I could say that uh, I'm a fan of whatever um, uh, brand of, I don't know, TVs work. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a fan of uh, a particular brand. I'm a fan of uh, somebody doing a job that is uh, done correctly, that is always working, and it is going to be dependable, so I can depend my career on. And that's it. I'm, I'm not uh, into Linux because Linux is uh, better than Apple. It's not, right on now. On desktop, it's not. Uh, on desktop, Linux uh, compared to Apple, basically Apple is always better. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't commit to Apple operating systems because they are just a thing that runs on Apple hardware, that's it. Uh, okay, that, that that's a philosophy problem as well. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that one as well. Also, I don't like committing to Windows because we have seen that, uh, for example, Windows 2022 uh, don't work as well as uh, 2019. And or 12. Or or any other version. But uh, this is a problem. I, I'm, I'm uh, with it, you. Yeah. it hasn't happened uh, in Linux world. It hasn't happened that newer version of Linux was... Uh, much, much, much worse compared to the previous version. There were hiccups. They had problems. But they uh, went through them qu uh, quite quickly. In Windows, it happens that Microsoft needs to, when it's committed to a new version of Windows Server, they're committed. Uh, Vista, uh, Windows 8, uh, Windows 8.1, and so on. So Windows 8 is the Windows Me of uh, 90s, uh, 2000s. And Vista as well. Vista is uh, for the 2000, uh, Windows 8 is for the 2010s. But they're just 
in each uh, decade they are committed to uh, releasing a crappy operating system that they are going to pretend the famous cadence yes they are going to uh, pretend that it never happened they are going to say that uh, windows uh, right now i, I actually saw uh, I saw an article that was trying to claim that windows 8.1 was the release windows 8 never existed uh, because they want bending reality gaslighting but that's just uh, what is happening in this part of the administration. For me, Linux is a stable tool that mm. I can use, and I can do a lot of stuff with. I agree. So uh, I- instead of uh, needing a router that ne- uh, is able to con- uh, connect to the network, you can spin up a virtual machine and then... Uh, do <laughs> yes. You, Thank you, you very much for playing with my, me, with my suffering of the past couple of days. Yes, but uh, you know that you have a solution in the end. Yeah, I solved it. No problem. Yes, uh, this, uh, Linux is usually the solution. No, it's always a solution it's, for it's, these it's sorts of problems. It's not pretty, it's not uh, for the faint of hearted, but it's a solution. I, I disagree heavily on that because one of the one of the things that I realized over time is the, uh, apart from the generalized, you know, beauty, eye of, eye of the beholder, blah, 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 not, it's not that. The elegance of Linux actually comes from the fact that it works. And it, it doesn't matter to me how that looks visually. I don't care text mode is perfectly reasonable for me. Actually, the, the problem that you mentioned, so had to solve a problem for you know, one of our um, marketing activities, which uh, we managed to do, but internet connection ended up being the problem as well, so we scrapped that. But basically, I was very happy to create a client hyper virtual machine, which worked, connected to two networks, one of them wireless, one of them wired, IP tables between them, you know, IP forwarding and whatnot, whatnot by connecting via body. I don't need GUI, I don't need anything. It was minimal installation, which was this small, basically, on the desk, and in terms of compute and everything that it needs, just works brilliantly. That's, yes. that's my reason why I like it. It solves my problems, never disappoints me in solving them, and it's easy to use. Okay, albeit from the perspective of using it for 25 years, but still, you know, the things that I did today, you can learn in a couple of months. You c- still can do bridging in Windows 10. Yes, but it doesn't work properly. I tried that as well. That that was my initial. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, I know. So it worked first time that I uh, did it, but when I switched to another wireless network and I disassembled the bridge and tried to uh, apply it again, then it broke and never started worked again afterwards. Windows 10, all of the all of the patches, all of the latest updates. TCP/IP stack uh, is always the better part of the. I could have bridged the the connections in Linux easily as well. Yes, I know, but. Uh, you could have done it in Windows, Linux e- easily, and you could done it uh, in Windows, but it wouldn't work. That's that's the that's my main problem with Windows. Uh, I want uh, things that are uh, advertised to work, work as advertised. To, no, no, to work. Mm-hmm. If there's somebody mentions uh, a networking bridge, mm-hmm. I want this to be a dependable feature. Uh, when Linux, when you say uh, I can uh, create an IP table rule and I can uh, create a, a bridge between uh, uh, network cards, if I even hear that something is available as a virtual network card, I know that I can do anything with the network. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Windows, so that stems from the idea of everything is a file, basically. Yes, but uh, in Windows, if something is available as a network card, maybe it will work, maybe it, it won't. Depending on and how the kernel is going to enumerate the cards. And the services that you start. Wireless is a perfect example of that on Windows Server. You have to I start a s- separate service for that. Yes, yes. But, but okay. But uh, my uh, gripe is with uh, 
you can have the cards, but cards are some, sometimes are going to be enumerated in another way. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it Limits could, does that as well. Yes, it does it as well, but uh, you can more or less uh, nail down the configuration and t- tell it to stop doing that. Yeah, you can use dev.conf a little yes. bit and it's going to work. I agree. With Windows, sometimes that... You just don't have, you don't have the flexibility. You don't have the tools to do that properly unless, you want, to, unless you want to break the, the registry. No, no, there is probably a tool, mm-hmm. but the tool is some obscure uh, registry key that you need to know or uh, you need to find out in some uh, dark uh, pocket of the internet that is inhabited by uh, goblins that are doing the the, the... the Windows magic. Windows magic, yes. Yeah, well, by, you know, just waving with their magic wands. So, let's finish this thing. Yes. Let's finish this thing. Uh, what do I do? I just say that it's a wrap? Yeah. So, it's a wrap on this episode of the IT Show podcast. We'll see you next time. Yes. We have... Honestly, no idea what is going to be the next episode. But until then, I'm Yasmin. I'm Vedran. And bye-bye. Bye-bye.